Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Cahan, who is the author of numerous books, including Reforging Shakespeare, The Cult of Keen, Betty Mania and the Birth of Celebrity Culture, Shakespeareism, Shakespeare and the Occult, The Quest for Shakespeare, The Peculiar History and Surprising Legacy of the New Shakespeare Society, and the book that we're going to be discussing today, Shakespeare and Superheroes, published just this year by Amsterdam Arc Press. So hi, Jeffrey, and welcome to the show. It's really nice to have you here. Well, uh, it's very nice to be invited, and thank you for that fulsome introduction, which I wrote myself. It is very good. (laughs) I know you did obviously have many, many more publications and many more academic activities. But unfortunately, I feel like it would probably take up the entire podcast to list them all, as you're obviously an incredibly prolific author. But would you like to tell me a bit about the book that we're here to discuss today? Uh, I know it's part of ARC's Recreational Shakespeare series, which seems like a really interesting idea and a really interesting approach to Shakespeare, which obviously is something that's quite difficult to achieve considering the huge wealth of academic writing on Shakespeare. But could you tell us a bit about the series and how your book fits into it? So the series actually is the brainchild of um, Michael Dobson, the director of the Shakespeare Institute. A couple of years ago, he ran a seminar in um, uh, SAA, which is uh, Shakespeare Association of America. In any case, the topic was recreational Shakespeare. And uh, I wrote a paper and some other people wrote papers, et cetera, et cetera. And um, nothing ever came of it. And a couple of years later, one of the people who was in that seminar, uh, his name is Mike Jensen, he and I were talking and we said, well, maybe we could do something on the same theme. So the idea was really to get away from the way the institution talks about Shakespeare and to look at the ways just ordinary people deal with Shakespeare in their daily lives, the way they playfully engage with Shakespeare. So we're not really looking for uh, an intellectual exercise. There are plenty, plenty of those. We were really looking to find new ways of not just looking at Shakespeare, but talking about him, getting away from all that jargony stuff that we all get trained in. So essentially, the the purpose of the series is a new approach to Shakespeare. Uh, could you talk a bit about how Shakespeare and comics fits into this? Well, what I want, what I, when, okay, so I've written books on Shakespeare and I've written books on comics and I've never written books on Shakespearean comics, though there are a lot of them. So there are uh, books, uh, comic books uh, that are illustrative versions of Shakespeare's tales. There are also um, parodies of Shakespeare and sometimes Shakespeare himself will appear in the comics. But I didn't want to do any of that because 
that would just be appropriation studies, the way Shakespeare is consumed or remodeled within popular culture. What I really wanted to do was re-engage Shakespeare uh, in a way that was quite different than the way he's normally processed through the academia. So I began by thinking about Shakespeare as a classic text, and I began by thinking about when he became a classic text, which was really about 140 years after his death. Samuel Johnson says that Shakespeare deserves the status of a classic. But when Johnson says that Shakespeare is a classic, he doesn't mean that Shakespeare is perfect. In fact, Johnson often rips on Shakespeare for his lack of moral clarity, his puns and quibbles, so that even, quote-unquote, a classic text is not sacrosanct. So I wanted to take that same approach to comic books. Now, comic books have been around about 80 years in the way that we think about comic books. And all I was really trying to do is do to comic books what Johnson did to Shakespeare. Uh, So I wanted to engage in the text in a very serious way, but I didn't want a hierarchical approach. I didn't want to treat Shakespeare as the penultimate text and and comic books as the Johnny-come-latelys. I wanted to see how comic books could respond to a kind of intellectual debate with Shakespeare. In some cases, I found, my personal interest was that in some ways, comic books actually do a Shakespearean turn better than Shakespeare. So, for example, uh, in my first uh, major chapter, which is on uh, Arrow, um, Arrow versus Hamlet, I basically put the two texts side by side. I'm dealing with Arrow, the TV show, by the way. I don't know if that's running in the UK. I'm, I'm assuming it, it does. Does it? It is, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love it. It does, yeah. I love the show, by the way. So, like, in, in the episode... It is quite good. No, it's excellent. So, in episode three of the, of the first season, uh, Felicity says to Arrow, it says to um, Oliver, I don't want to get in the middle of this whole Hamlet thing. And Oliver plays dumb and says, like, what are you talking about? And uh, so, so, there's a direct and obvious correlation between what goes on in Arrow and the plotline of Hamlet. But then as the season progresses, those plotlines diverge radically because basically in Hamlet, Hamlet's solution to everything is kill him. <laughs> and, and Arrow's solution is that thugs can become heroes, that people can be redeemed. So if you just look at it just on that very basic level, you know, now you have a, a, an ethical way of evaluating both characters. So I'm not really interested in, in direct borrowings so much as actually divergences and debates between the two texts. And it seems to me, at any rate, that Arrow comes off as the more virtuous hero. Um, you know, he's he goes through some very Hamlet-like situations, including being haunted by his father, the possible corruption of his mother and implication of his mother in his father's death. All that stuff is very Hamlet-like, but his solution is radically different and I think superior, frankly. 
Okay, so what you're positing there is less a case of a direct influence or a direct adaptation, but rather a sort of dialogue between the texts. That is not, yeah, it's not simply a matter of direct adaptation, but rather an engagement with similar themes and similar ideas, similar, so a sort of maybe similar moral framework or a similar uh, engagement with particular philosophical and uh, intellectual ideas. So one particular thing I found really interesting was that you talk about the fact that both Oliver Queen, uh, the Green Arrow to the rest of us, and Shakespeare's Hamlet um, sort of assume that they exercise a degree of free will, but actually much of what they do is dictated by these commands from beyond the grave. And they essentially these commands essentially curtail their freedom, that they don't really act as free individuals with agency. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. Um, So do you think these texts are sort of united by the way in which they address these very complex issues of agency and free will? Well, they do, at least in, in my interpretation, right? So... What what you know the the paradoxes there continue if you look at the ghost paradigm right so ghosts never change but the living do so uh, in in the case of uh, Oliver um, he's haunted by both memories and he's also got a list of names right and Hamlet also of course has his his own little blotter with uh, you know he takes down uh, various quotations and things commonplace book. Uh, but both Oliver and Hamlet treat people as if they were dead. That's to say, they both treat people, Oliver initially, but Hamlet throughout the text, as if they are incapable of change. So in that sense, and and the ghost treats Hamlet, Ham, you know, he's quite perturbed that his son won't do as he's told, right? So Hamlet is basically an errand boy for his father. And then when he begins to question or, or you know, actually, um, uh, you know, uh, piece out what he needs to do and the ramifications of it, he begins to have doubts and qualms and delays and so forth. And his father becomes quite upset, right? Why aren't you doing what I tell you to do? Well, in in Oliver's case, that situation, you know, actually uh, is intensified to the point where he actually begins to start disobeying the list. He begins to question the validity of the list and then in the end decides that maybe the list doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean, what it seems to mean. So truth itself becomes reinterpreted just as it does for Hamlet in his uh, letter to Ophelia, you know, doubt truth to be a liar and all that stuff. But for Oliver, he comes really not just to question the father's list, but to really junk it. He creates his own list and he creates his own agency in the world. So again, you know, for me, I look at those those situations and I say, well, who's actually a hero? Can you be a hero if you're just delivering a pizza, right? If you have no agency over your own life, can you really be called a hero? You could be called an Avenger. You're just doing what you're told. But can you really be a hero? So again, it seems to me I come to the same conclusion. 
Oliver is the superior character. Now, you might imagine that a lot of Shakespeareans bristle at the idea <laughs> that, <laughs> that Oliver Queen is superior at Hamlet, but we're just talking about it on a purely ethical basis. We're not talking about it as an artistic creation or depth and all that stuff. And of course, Oliver has a big advantage over Hamlet, which is that Hamlet has three and a half hours on the stage to basically map out his story and terrain, whereas Oliver has now, what, seven seasons, right? So this was something else that I really found interesting, that the the growth of Oliver uh, is really like a, an incremental piece, right? And and it's guided by all kinds of marketing conditions, how many people are watching the show, advertisers, the whole ethos of the CW, etc. So, you know, all those things add, you know, bits and pieces to what becomes Oliver. So I can't really, you know, um, say that Oliver exi- is existing in a vacuum and this is a purely, you know... Um, intellectual exercise but of course you could say the same thing for hamlet the market forces that shaped shakespeare's writing career and all that stuff so it's it's pretty complicated really uh but you know i found that just by treating them as an equal i was raising all kinds of questions that i i personally don't normally come across when i come across comparative studies of shakespeare and another text That's a really interesting point. And I actually just want to go back to what you said there about the influence of market forces on both texts, because I've actually been thinking a little bit as you've been speaking about the kinds of audiences that consumed these texts and how they were were received by contemporary audiences. And do you think there's any sort of parallel there? I really couldn't say because I haven't really considered it, to tell you the truth. It's an interesting question. Yeah, good answer. Good answer, but <laughs> very good answer. Um, but that, that, that's how I usually respond to questions like that. But I was just thinking about the idea that Shakespeare, generally, I think the and I'm not a specialist, but the the audiences were generally quite diverse for Shakespeare's work, as far as I know, um, in terms of like socioeconomic background and um, sort of learning or education. Well, yeah, there there was tier pricing for the Globe, for example, right? That, uh, you know, there were cheap seats and more expensive seats. Uh, but people, you know, could watch the CW for all kinds of reasons. But I tend to think, and probably market forces would, reinf- would, would uh, back me on this, that the CW is skewed to a really young audience. So, uh, which I think is one of the reasons why nobody has ever talked about Arrow and Hamlet, because Shakespeareans just aren't tuning in. Uh, So, you know, uh, and that raises a whole other problem, which is that for an entire generation of kids now, when they do pick up Hamlet or are forced to read Hamlet, let's be frank, uh, they are probably going to say, dude's a lot like arrow right so that arrow so that arrow now becomes the controlling text for hamlet right the the narrative dynamic will be reversed that's actually a really really fascinating point because you're right obviously shakespeareans academics or maybe generally watching something like arrow will maybe find themselves noting the parallels between arrow and hamlet 
and all, especially because Hamlet is directly referenced in the show. But then you're right, you have this fascinating reversal whereby teenagers and young people who might be reading Hamlet in school will find themselves reading Hamlet intertextually through the lens of Arrow. So you have this really, really fascinating reversal and a really, really fascinating shift in how people receive something like Arrow based on the popularity of the superhero. Uh, I think that what you say, I think that what you say is right. Uh, I think it's self, I think it's self-evident, but it's by no means unique. So like for me and probably everyone of my generation, maybe even everyone of your generation, you were introduced to opera through Bugs Bunny, right? So, right. But, but how many articles have I ever come across about Bugs Bunny's influence on Verde, right? I mean, none. But in fact, for, for most consumers of my age, if I go to see an opera, um, which I don't very often, to tell you the truth, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to think, oh, that's, that's the Bugs Bunny part, right? That's, that's the part where he makes the fruit salad on the guy's head. So, <laughs> right? So, so all these, you know, they're, you know, we might think of it as a lack of decorum, but, you know, we could just put aside all of that stuff and just look at how culture is, you know, regurgitating and just reworking this stuff and just accepting that that's part of the beauty of being alive at this this point in time, that history has gone on so long that, you know, sometimes we'll get to the new stuff before we get to the old stuff so that, right, so that there's going to be this weird reversal. Me personally, um, probably my introduction to Shakespeare was through Star Trek, right? The original Star Trek had all, had all kinds of Shakespeare in it, right? And, you know, and, um, and there are all kinds of uh, Shakespearean quotations. Stan Lee was a huge Shakespeare guy. Um, so there are all kinds of Shakespearean quotation through Marvel Comics. Uh, he also quoted from Dunn quite a bit. So, but you you really wouldn't pick up on it as a kid. Uh, and there's also a lot of Milton stuff. It's all over the place. But I really wasn't interested in that kind of study because all that really does is say, in one way or another, this old stuff came first. It's really important. Everything that came thereafter is derivative and therefore not as good. And that's just not how I see it. I see it as quite different. In fact, absolutely. Opposite. And I think it's sort of a mistake to sort of maintain that sort of hierarchical approach because it prevents us from really delving into a variety of texts. And I think it's really fascinating that your work engages with the relationship between Shakespeare and superhero comics not, as we said earlier, in terms of influence, but rather in terms of how they engage with these broader themes and how they, they function as distinct texts, but distinct texts that engage with similar ideas and similar themes, yet in different ways and within a different context. Yeah, but you see, when it's, it's, it goes even deeper than that, because they're, you know, we're not just engaging in a debate. I'm actually changing the way you read Hamlet. You know, once you read Hamlet through an arrow dynamic, then what you're expecting in Hamlet, the way the energies of the text uh, originally seem to operate, are slightly skewed. So I'm so I'm actually using arrow to kind of revise Hamlet, 
if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's true. I mean, reading something like Hamlet, like I said earlier, through the lens of um, Arrow or having that sort of the knowledge of that text in your mind whilst reading Hamlet, as you know, obviously changes how you approach the text and changes how you understand certain themes and perhaps even clarifies certain elements or provides a new perspective on certain elements of something like Hamlet. So it, it is a really, really in- interesting interaction and a really interesting relationship between these distinct texts. And I was wondering, actually, do you think that there is something inherent to the idea of the superhero or the idea of the superhero comic that lends itself to an analysis alongside Shakespearean texts? Well, sure, there's lycra and capes. Absolutely, that's the best part of both. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that, well, you know, I'm joking, but really I'm not, right? I mean, there is a certain look that we associate with, quote-unquote, a hero. And that seems to look a lot like Olivier and Hamlet, right? Or, you know, any of the, the great, you know, the Orson Welles uh, Macbeth. So... Yeah, I think that there probably is just by dint of cultural association, you know, when we think hero, somewhere in that dynamic, pretty close to the surface, we're thinking traditional Shakespearean garb. I don't know that uh, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and all the other great uh, artists and writers that uh, that originally populated Marvel were thinking that way, but they could have. Uh, it's hard to think that that it was totally devoid that that the Shakespearean dynamic was totally, you know, uh, devoid of their thinking. So it, it could be. But, you know, the there are also obvious differences, which, uh, you know, would include the episodic nature of comic books, the cliffhanger dynamic. Though, you know, I guess you could look at the Shakespearean tetralogies uh, and see a similar kind of dynamic uh, operating there. So maybe even that is uh, is similar. Um, obviously, one of the big differences is language. I mean, the Shakespearean language is formidable, and comic book culture could not survive or subsist using that kind of, you know, um, verbiage. Though, though, sh- though, actually, Stanley tries to create a kind of Shakespearean language in, for example, the original Thor comic books back in the 60s. Um, but when I looked at the two texts together for this study, I wanted to have a very friendly and chatty tone because I wanted it to fit within this idea of a recreational Shakespeare. So I wanted that language and the arguments to flow very naturally. I wanted a very um, informal discourse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Actually, I want to go back to that issue of uh, costumes and costuming just briefly, because it is something that's really fascinating. Because, of course, you know, every teenager studying Shakespeare in school will immediately latch on to the fact that the female parts were played by men. Um, it's It's always a source of fascination for them. But I really like how you talk about that in your second chapter. And you talk about this idea of how for like there is this theory circulating that for an Elizabethan audience, this kind of cross dressing might have served as a sort of 
It might have served as a source of a homoerotic attraction or as a way of exploring anxieties about a feminized self. And I was curious as to how this notion of cross-dressing might help us to understand the appeal of, say, 20th century superheroes like Wonder Woman, who you discuss extensively in your second chapter. Yeah, I think um, out of all the chapters in the book, I think the Wonder Woman chapter is the one that would raise most eyebrows, not only among academics, but also among comic book fans. So um, if you look at Wonder Woman number one from way back from 1942, all of the Amazonians, with the exception of Diana, were instantiated by the Mother Earth deity Gaia. And she actually discharges uh, juices from her womb into the sea and upspring the Amazonians. But the queen, Hippolyta, she, and of course that's a Shakespearean name, she wants a child. And there's no men to conceive a child with. So she carves a girl out of stone and then prays to Aphrodite to imbue it with life. Now, Here's where things get very funky. So Diana is made differently than all the other Amazonians, right? And all the Amazonians are female. Uh, Diana is made from clay and, in, and brought to life by Aphrodite. But Aphrodite, the goddess of love, uh, is actually um, the kind of, uh, well, she was born from the sex organ of the titan Uranus. So Uranus is chopped into pieces by his son Kronos. His penis is tossed into the sea and out pops Aphrodite. So Aphrodite has a particular male genus within her. Uh, so the takeaway here is that Diana is not all woman and thus not all Amazonian. So she's biologically or inherently in her DNA, she is partially a man and when she comes to america and assumes um a uh, a secret identity she calls herself diana prince not diana princess diana prince and she wears a brown khaki military uniform right now here's the funky thing so i did some research on this Women were not officially allowed into the armed services until 1948. Diana is wearing khaki in 1942. So she's passing herself off not only with a male last name, but she's also, she's also dressing like a man. So her cross-dressing here seems to be an attempt not just to pass as a mortal, but as a, but as a man, not just as a human, but as a man. Uh, and she you know, goes into the army, serves in the army in some capacity. You know, in a sense, she just wants to pass as one of the guys. And this continues, for example, when she joins the early version of the Justice League, right, which was then called the Justice Society of America. And again, this is in 1942. So all these guys crowd around Diana and they throw her like a welcoming party. And the song that they sing for her to join the organization is for she's a jolly good fellow. Right? So so there are like all kinds of weird sexual crossovers here. So this is kind of like 
um, Shakespeare in reverse. We have a, uh, a man dressing up as a woman, more like a Moliere player, really. Uh, and in Shakespeare, we have these women dressed up as men, played by boys, etc., etc. So you could see a similar kind of confusion, right? Uh, and there's this one version of uh, uh, in an early um, Wonder Woman story where Steve and Diana are kidnapped uh, or brought to a special island. I can't remember the exact context. But Steve is made to do all the female labor. He's made to cook and clean and do the dishes and all and do the sewing and all the female, quote unquote, female stuff. And he learns to like it really fast. Like he's thrilled that he's a really good cook. Right. So in the meantime, like Diana's like all fighting and like being all manly man. Right. So. Again, this seems to me a very Shakespearean dynamic, right? So would would people today uh, look at, you know, a Wonder Woman comic and see this masculine DNA within its uh, genesis? Well, you could go and read about Marston and the funky sexual lifestyle that he enjoyed or uh, practiced, but it's all there and it seems very similar to Shakespearean cross-dressing. So again, I do a kind of comparison there. And I think there, my, my personal belief is that they come out pretty much on the same page. They, they come to the, both Shakespeare and Wonder Woman comics come to the conclusion that costume is identity. That if you dress like a woman, there are all kinds of performative behaviors that are associated with it. If you dress as a man, there are all kinds of associative and performative behaviors associated with that. So again, we're kind of um, sort of going back to that arrow argument that there is nothing endemic uh, in identity. It isn't in biology it isn't in you know the culture that you were born within. Everything is accidental. There's nothing endemic. That's a really interesting perspective. And I was just wondering as well, since you point out in the book that in Shakespearean comedies, there's a tendency for women to dress as men or to adopt a male identity in order to gain some more freedom or some more agency within a patriarchal society. Do you think that there's a similar attitude towards gender and the role of women within a patriarchal society, or does the manner in which Wonder Woman defies gender roles uh, more complex? Is her gender identity maybe more complex than that of the Shakespearean heroines who, who dress as men? Well, um, I don't know. I really don't know. You know, I hate to be, I listen sometimes to these podcasts or to interviews or read or, you know, in conferences and people seem to always have the perfect answer. They've thought about it a long time. I don't know. That's a complex question. Um, It would be one thing if Shakespeare had a lot of hermaphrodites wandering around the stage as say, for example, Ben Johnson does in in a couple of his plays or there are poems about hermaphrodism. But I don't know, uh, to the extent that Wonder Woman exists as a hermaphrodite within her own uh, early, um, 
her, her you know her her inception i i i don't know i i would have to think about that i have no answer off the cuff. i think you know that's actually the wonderful thing or i think anyway one of the wonderful things about engaging with a text that there are always more questions that there are always these things that are not answered that you don't have a response to that you know every question or every bit of analysis always yields more questions so it's nice to have this sort of open-ended approach to things because I do think that you know this issue of Wonder Woman's gender identity and how I suppose how she might be categorized or how she evolves as character or how she exists within a very sort of not only a patriarchal society, but a society that very much attempts to box people into gender identity as either male or female. I think that's actually a very complex issue. And I think it's probably something that continues to evolve. So I do like the idea that this is something that is very much open-ended. But I was wondering, actually... I will say, I will yeah. say this. Wonder Woman... I will say this: Wonder Woman should be a David Bowie fan. Absolutely, yeah, you're right. She, and I, I, I do think she does have this wonderful sort of androgyny to her that's really, really fascinating and really yeah. sort of aesthetically appealing as well. Like even you know, as her costume has gone through various sort of you know redesigns over the years and has kind of changed to reflect contemporary aesthetics, there's always this sort of androgynous element to it, which makes her really sort of fascinating as a character because. Her sort of her femininity is very much foregrounded in some ways. I mean, she's called Wonder Woman and she definitely the way her costume is constructed generally tends to accentuate certain feminine features. But there's also sort of a masculinity to it and a sort of almost a sort of hardness to it that sort of suggest <clears throat> that sort of. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm going to have to cut that out because I coughed a lot. Um, that sort of that sort of suggests okay. a a masculinity or a sort of um, a masculine toughness. So she does seem to exist in this really interesting space between masculine and feminine and male and female. And I was actually thinking, because I know you touch on this in the book, you talk a little bit about the sort of controversy surrounding comic book characters in the post-war period. And you have... For example, you know, Frederick Wortham's famous book, Seduction of the Innocent. Did he, did he touch on yeah. Wonder Woman in particular as a character? Was there a particular anxiety about the manner in which she embodies this sort of androgyny or this transgression of gender roles? Um, and I was wondering, and I, do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go on. And Wortham comes straight out. He says, uh, straight out. He comes straight out and he says, uh, Wonder Woman is a lesbian. That uh, she goes to this all-female school. She empowers women to uh, hang around with other women. She doesn't seem to need men in her life. Um, she seems to be married to, at one point, or at least in a relationship with a woman. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, Candy, who's also in the, the recent movies. Um, so, yeah, Wortham was really, really worried about Wonder Woman. He was worried about Batman and Robin, too. 
for similar reasons. Two guys hang around all the time. They get dressed. Like the guy's never been to a gym. Wortham has never been to a gym. Right? He just oh. assumes that, that people cannot wow. get dressed in front of each other. Like, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I do. You know? I do so, love his assumption that you know Wonder Woman doesn't seem to be in a relationship, or she doesn't need men in her life. Therefore, she is a lesbian. It's a very sort of interesting leap of logic there. Well, Candy, who's Wonder Woman's uh, friend, she's always saying when she hangs out with Wonder Woman, you know, what do I need a man for? All I need is Candy. Uh, And some scholars have read into this that Candy is suggestively inviting Wonder Woman to taste her desserts, right? So, yeah. So so that's kind of cool. I'm all for that. Uh, and then, and then Candy is also a scientist at this all-female college, and she comes up with this pill called uh, L three, and it's and a lot of scholars say, oh, it's a lesbian pill, right? <laughs> like it, it makes women, uh, it it allows women to live independently. I go all, I go into this uh, to some extent in the book. Um, and you know maybe there's something to it. Uh, I looked up the the actual meaning of L three in that era, and it turns out it was vitamin C. But there you go. And was there any sort of anxiety? I mean, I imagine it probably never reached the level of hysteria that Wortham certainly promulgated. But was there any sort of anxiety uh, amongst contemporary audiences about the way in which, say, Shakespeare's heroines transgressed gender norms and passed themselves off as men? Or was it simply viewed as a, you know, a comic plot device? Well, I think there were there were some transgressive dressing going on. Uh, and I, I cite a couple of instances of it. Um, but, you know, the, every every generation is going to have people who are going to fight clothing norms. Uh, that's not necessarily the same as, you know, a full-blown sexuality. So, like, women today wear jeans, right? Jeans are male attire, right? They're, they were made for male farmers, I guess, out in the field. I mean, they're, they're workmen, they're workmen pants, right? But we don't think of women as cross-dressing when they wear jeans anymore. So the whole idea of what is appropriate male attire, female attire, is always going to be in some fluidity. And we might remember that Queen Elizabeth, you know, on the the eve of the of the battle for the, you know, in 1588, the Armada, uh, gave that speech where she said, you know, that although she has the body of a woman. She has the heart of a man or the heart of a warrior or some, something to that extent. So, you know, just verbally. So there could be cross-dressing in a verbal sense as well, right? Having somebody address you with a, some sort of ma- formal male language. You could, you could appropriate masculinity in many ways and you could appropriate femininity in many ways. I mean... I think that shows like Big Bang Theory do the same thing, right? That all these guys are closet nerds and they can't get along with women and they seem very comfortable with men. I mean, you could read into that a very, um, well, a homoerotic tendency. And yet they, they they all get women and yet the women seem somehow more comfortable with themselves too, right? The women seem funnier, chattier, more intelligent when they're hanging out with themselves as well.
So yeah, absolutely. You know, so I, I think um, I don't know what the takeaway is, other than to say that these um, these topics have always been in flux. That every generation seems to wrestle with them in their own way. And, you know, I wrote another book a couple of years ago called Betty Mania and the Birth of Celebrity Culture. And it's about this boy actor. And, man, you read these descriptions. I mean, they they considered his body. They looked at his body as if it were a, a pornographic object for for consumption. And men and men and women wanted to touch him and. It's, it gets all weird. It's a very, very weird thing. So it's, uh, you know, human sexuality is a very complex thing. And, and I don't think, and it doesn't have to be solved, right? It's just what we do. Exactly. And these ideas about gender and gender norms are constantly in flux anyway. And so much of it, you know, gender is performative as well. So it's, it, it's, you know, something that is so hard to pin down. And it's interesting, though, to note the sort of fluidity that's present in both Shakespeare and in comics like Wonder Woman. But I actually wanted to jump forward at this point to talk about your third chapter, because I think you draw this really, really fascinating comparison between um, Othello's Iago and the character of Deadpool, who I'm sure is probably familiar to a lot of non-comic book readers from the, the recent films, but I really like this parallel you make about between them because you talk a lot about their humor and how they dis they display a sort of meta-awareness of the narratives in which they're acting. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that and that sort of meta-humor. Right. So, you know, a lot of characters in Shakespeare have this ability to sort of walk outside the text and do a soliloquy or address us or do a kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Richard III does it. Hamlet does it. And Iago does it. Um, so they, they, you know, my argument for Iago is that uh, in the end, he is curtailed because although he seems to have an awareness of us and we obviously of him, uh, he has no ability to change the nature of the plot. It's a tragedy. A lot of people are going to die. And he's the bad guy and he's going to get exposed. He has a limited power in so far as he denies an explanation for his activities, right? What you know, you know from this time forth uh, I will um, never speak, something like that. Uh, in the case of Deadpool, it's like a whole other level because not only is he aware of us and jokes directly with us, he's also aware of his own authors and often he will interact with his authors. So, you know, <laughs> which is, it's, it's difficult to describe without actually having the comic book in front of you, but just get some Deadpool comics. It's very weird. It is like sometimes he calls attention to like the, the speech bubbles and the, you know, the boxes that with the, the description of what's happening, like he'll call attention to like the very nature of the comic book text. And he'll be like, oh, you know, where are my little, you know, speech bubbles today or kind of weird things like that. Like it just sort of takes it takes apart, like not just the the narrative or the re or, you know, it doesn't just address the readership. It actually like dissects the 
the whole text. You know, he points out that he's in a panel and that there are speech bubbles. And yeah, it's it's very engaged with that sort of meta. And he'll also go outside of that. So he'll say things like, oh, what will Ryan Reynolds make of this in the new movie? Right? <laughs> so so he, he has this awareness of other worlds, other dimensions. And then within the Deadpool comic, um, he can actually move into other literary universes. So there's this series where Deadpool basically, you know, uh, wills himself into the Shakespearean world. And being, being Deadpool, he begins to kill everyone. So, and, and often women will hit on him to hire him as an assassin. Right. So, you know, um, uh, you know, the, um, I can't remember exactly the plot line, but at one point he, he agrees to kick, to kill King Lear at another point. He's, he's going to do the bidding of the merry wives of Windsor. It, it becomes very complex and very funny. And then they'll, they begin to speak in Shakespearean language and he will adapt that language, but create puns and quibbles in a way that seems very Shakespearean. So he, he interacts with the text, but he also undermines the text. And the point there is that he has a greater freedom than, say, somebody like Iago. At the same time, they do seem to be similar in that they are both comedic in nature, that, um, that Iago is basically creating the equivalent of a very long and complicated and ultimately deadly practical joke. Uh, and a lot of the tropes of, his, of, of that joke come from comedy. Lost laundry, for example. I mean, the whole play turns on lost laundry, right? I mean, that's a, that's a comedic trope. And when Othello is finally um, revealed as uh, the murderer of his wife, and he explains himself, Amelia says, oh, you fool, you dolt, you gull. I mean, those are all words that we associate with comedy. He's the butt of a practical joke, right? Now, in the case of um, uh, Deadpool, his humor is of an entirely different sort. It, it, well, I, the delivery of his humor, his style of humor is radically different than Iago's. Uh, but at the same time, I can't help but feel that there's a similarity because um, ultimately neither character seems to have any core beliefs. So if you have no identity, you have no integrity. And if you have no integrity, you have no way of integrating yourself into a story. And that's my argument for Deadpool, that since he has no integrity, he can float. He's a He's a free agent. He can go into any literary universe and, you know, instantiate himself within it. But at the same time, he can't really change the universe and neither can Iago because they're nothing. So there's nothing to integrate with or into, if you see what I'm saying. So Yeah. They're sort so, of on like, the periphery almost. Yeah. Yeah. So... But I think that, you know, there is a big difference, I argue in the chapter, in the way that their stories close. So basically, uh, Iago, everyone says, tell us more, right? In, in, in comedic terms, they want an encore. 
They they want more jokes. They they want an answer. They want an answer. And with Deadpool, he wants to tell more jokes, and everyone keeps telling him to shut up. So <laughs> so there's this there's this dynamic where they seem different, but in fact what they could tell us the truths that either would espouse seem similar because there's a kind of nihilism right that there's there's nothing that they are nothing and that is a truth it's a bitter truth but it's a truth that weakens us morally so it's different than satire i mean satire is meant to shame us into better behavior right the daily show right is is attempting or saturday night live isn't farcical it's satirical it's trying to shame us into seeing the foibles of our own uh, behavior and you know to be better but with deadpool and iago that is not the point at all there is no better because if you had better and worse then you would have an ethical or moral universe positive and negatives etc that's not where they operate from. So it's a kind of existential world for both of them. Uh, you could say that Shakespeare, wow, did all you know, did all that centuries ago. Uh, and I don't would never take anything away from Shakespeare. Uh, but what Deadpool is doing is not um, inconsequential either. And it's pretty complex. I mean, if you're just a kid or a teenager probably reading Deadpool comics – you're going to come away with a pretty significant uh, amount of uh, moral philosophy. You might not, or existential philosophy. You might not be aware of the actual terms of it, but you're going to come away having done the homework in the same way that, um, and I'm sure it's popular in the UK, we have this show called uh, The Good Place, which is doing exactly the same thing. No, it's an excellent show. There's a long piece in the New York, in the New York Times recently on it. I if you haven't read it, you should. It's a fantastic article. So, so I think uh, Deadpool is doing something very similar to that. Yeah, I, I actually think that's a really interesting point, that there is this sense that both Iago and Deadpool address this sort of very complex, as you said, existential issue that perhaps life doesn't have an inherent meaning, that that meaning comes from our core beliefs that we filter life experiences and these are transformed by our core beliefs, but it doesn't have any kind of inherent meaning. And they both seem to highlight that. But at the same time, it's sort of, it's a very bleak. But they have. Sorry? But they have no, they have no core exactly. beliefs. That's the problem. Yeah, that's it. So right? they, they kind of, despite their comedic nature, they sort of highlight this sort of, rather bleak sort of existential quandary whereby lacking core beliefs, they lack the capacity for any sort of meaningful life experience and they lack the capacity for any sort of transformation or growth really as characters. So they're simultaneously, you know, sort of in the tradition of kind of great existential theater almost, you know, like Beckett and stuff. They're simultaneously, you know, very funny characters, but they also draw our attention to this really sort of bleak philosophical issue of, you know, the fact that life is only rendered meaningful by by us and by our core beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm so glad that you that you see that and and sounds like you agree, but even if you didn't agree, I'm, I'm glad at least that you can follow the argument because, you know, 
you make an argument like that, when you make an argument like that, like you're really opening yourself up for, for uh, you know, uh, massive uh, rebuttal because, you know, people are going to say, well, they're comic book characters and all that stuff. So, you know, we are we are still living within the dictates of genre norms and we do put some stuff on pedestal and some stuff below it below the dais and um it is what it is so i think in some ways i'm i'm hopeful that the book will begin a new kind of conversation or or deepen a conversation that's already going yeah um you actually i noticed you seem to have this sort of running interest in the relationship between shakespeare and sort of the wider culture and i know this is something you talk about you have another book called shakespeareitualism that uh, sort of engages with the relationship between, you know, Shakespeare and adaptations of Shakespeare and sort of broader, we'll say, 19th century discourses about the supernatural and the growth of spiritualism. Is there sort of a continuity between these kinds of projects? Well, first of all, uh, I really like Shakespeareitualism. I, I that's that book. Uh, um, you know, it's just one of my, one of my favorites. I really liked it. I really liked writing it. I really liked everything about it. Um, so basically, what Shakespeareitualism does is um, it looks at this uh, vogue for seances that took place in the nineteenth century. And, uh, you know, you want to know what your parents are doing, or your grandparents, or your lost love. Well, Shakespeare scholars wanted to know what Shakespeare was doing. So knock, knock, Shakespeare, are you there? And sure enough, he's there, you know? And they so they start asking him questions and he starts wrapping out his answers. And Baconians, people who believe that Sir Francis Bacon wrote the plays, they have their own seances. And sure enough, Francis Bacon comes to the table and says that he wrote the plays and all that stuff. It becomes... It's very farcical, but it's also very revealing of, you know, the kinds of questions that they ask in those seances reveal what interests them about Shakespeare or about authorship itself. So it kind of occultism, instead of obscuring meaning, in fact, is bringing it to the fore. So I really enjoyed writing that book. But in the larger context, yeah, all my books are basically in one way or another pushing the envelope. Um, I had a friend who died recently, Christy Desmond from Georgia. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. And she uh, she once introduced me at a conference. Uh, I think she meant it kindly. She said uh, that I've been patrolling the borders of Shakespearean good taste for 25 years. Oh, that's well and, put. Uh, <laughs> And I think uh, I think that what she leaves out there is that I'm I'm often unclear about what side of the border I'm on. So I may well be a a, pr- a protector of Shakespeare, but sometimes I'm a cross border raider, right, or marauder, really. So I'm always looking for a topic that uh, you know what I okay. Here's one. Here's a way of like unifying my stuff. I'm interested in embarrassment. Whatever is embarrassing, whatever is embarrassing to academia, I want to know why. Excellent. I want to know why. (laughs) So there's always like a little story there, something that people want to sweep under the carpet. And that's always, that's where I go. Brilliant. I, Um... I, I, I go for the dirt under the carpet. 
Excellent. And it does make me think as well that academia would be a lot more fun if we included more seances and just started, you know, started interviewing the deceased subjects of our various books and articles. I think it would be a lot more interesting. So that that might be. Well, but but isn't that isn't that exactly what we do when we look for authorial intent? That is true. When we say that the text speaks, when we say that the text speaks. That is true. Or the. Right. So we're, we're still using the same language. We're just, you know, ignoring the implications of our own words. That's a really interesting idea. I, I kind of like the idea of considering academic writing or analysis to be a sort of, you know, textual seance or something. So I'm, I, might have to, I might have to use that term at some point in the future. Um, so I suppose I feel like at this point I've taken up a lot of your time already. But I did want to ask just in closing... Are you working on anything at the moment or do you have any new projects in the pipeline? So it's a, I personally find, and I don't know about you, I've, I've been reading a little bit of your stuff online and I find uh, your topics very interesting as well. Oh, thank you. Um, there's, there's no dearth of books coming out on Shakespeare or on anything else. The market seems to be very vigorous. But I personally, and this is just me, Though I don't think it's just me, uh, I'm just consumed by politics. Yeah. Everything has become about Trump. That is true. So, yeah. So you know, it used to be that we could discuss plot and character, uh, but a didactic exploration of what a work means or its social value might have been discussed, but as a central question what is the value of this work that was pretty much frowned upon so it seems to me you know to use a colloquialism it was the journey not the end that seemed to be the clarion call of most literary or critical academic work but now we're entering into an era of just where everything is political so now what we're it seems that everything that i read is about moral uplift Right, that the central focus of the work, maybe even the reason for writing about the work, has to be, or for creating the work, has to be in some way uh, because it's making the world a better place. If not, then why bother talking about it? I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe we're running out of time and the time for polite discourse is done. I, I don't know. Uh, I tend to think it is because I. I did this training with Al Gore on climate change recently, and the numbers are just frightening. And, you know, if you want to change the world and make a better place, writing one more essay on The Tempest is just not going to do it. It's just not. So I think that a lot of people are just totally consumed day by day with what's going on in, in around the world and in America in particular. And that makes my kind of writing, looking for basically the forgotten lunatic, right? uncovering that story and looking at, you know, the mechanisms of why that argument or why that person was important in that era. It kind of feels frivolous to me. So uh, at the same time, if I were to write something like, why is Shakespeare good for you? Right. Or Stephen Greenblatt wrote a, a recent 
rather brilliant, but everything he writes is brilliant, a rather brilliant book on Shakespeare and tyranny. Um, these kinds of things where Shakespeare has to speak for a moral good, that sounds to me paradoxically to be vaguely dystopian, like uh, Stalin paintings of women on tractors, right? So, so like art has to have a pushback. It can't simply be right or wrong. It can't be good or bad in a kind of moral or ethical way. It's got to do something other than state moral certainty. And uh, at this point in time, I, I don't know what the function of the arts is, and I, I frankly don't know my place in it. I mean, not that I ever had a central or important part in in that conversation i'm just a i'm just a guy but it 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 gets you rethinking your relationship with your own subject discipline so at this point i'm writing a little bit on ray bradbury i just did a collection you're in it thank you so much you wrote a brilliant essay but in terms of like uh in terms of like a full shakespearean book i'm i'm kind of rudderless i think i I think Trump has to go away before I can write again on Shakespeare. I, I think a lot of a lot of people feel that way. I think a lot of people feel like the the current political climate, even you know here on the other side of the Atlantic, we sort of feel like the you know the current global political climate is something that has sort of forced us to reconsider our yeah our disciplines and how we approach art and how we approach culture and how we frame or how we consider the purpose of art and culture and how we consider the purpose of of the critic you know uh so it certainly lend it lends itself to a sort of a reconsideration of what we do and a sort of uh maybe not necessarily a sort of directionlessness but certainly a sort of um a reconsideration or a um a reimagining of where we are and what we're doing and what the purpose of criticism is at this point in time. So it certainly, I think, has sort of lent itself to a kind of a questioning of of our role. So I can absolutely see that. Um, and that makes perfect sense, I think, at the moment. But um, so as I was saying earlier, I think I've probably taken up enough of your time. I know it's quite late in the evening over there. So I just, I suppose, wanted to thank you again for agreeing to speak to me and for joining me on the podcast. I feel like it was a really interesting, really dynamic conversation. So thank you so much for that. Well, uh, I want to thank you for inviting me and I want to take this opportunity uh, because I've never been on a podcast uh, before. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you and everyone associated with your team and also to say hi to my mom. So Aww. hi, mom. Oh, that's really nice. Uh, hi, Jeffrey's mom. I, I hope she enjoyed the podcast. Uh, so th <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and for this really, really engaging discussion. So um, your book, Shakespeare and Superheroes, is available from Amsterdam Arc Press. Uh, is that a, yep. is that available online or is there a, a store? Uh, does the press have a store or do you know how? how oh, no, you can get it all the... You can get it at all the major online retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that stuff. Um, but uh, but it's an academic book, so it's pricey. But I'm also told that there's going to be an e-version that is going to be way more affordable. Oh, wonderful. So, uh, so I'll make less money, 
but that's cool. But more people might read it, so you're sort of, you know... More people. Yeah, so it's it's a bit of a trade-off, but I think for anyone sort of interested in the relationship between Shakespeare and contemporary culture and, you know, how Shakespeare exists in dialogue with contemporary culture, particularly popular culture, it's a very interesting read, and I think the Recreational Shakespeare Studies series as a whole is something that's very necessary, so... It's definitely it's definitely worth checking out. So thanks again, Jeffrey, for joining us on the show. Uh, I'm Miranda Corcoran for the New Books in Literary Studies podcast. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in.